0: Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you, Pastor David Miles, for joining me and Rosie B. It was a great time on the Monday afternoon mix. Now we're going to talk money, which is an interesting topic. I shouldn't say money; I should say the economy, because I have Dr. Ann Bradley with us. She got her PhD in economics from George Mason University. She's an author. She's written a book called "For the Least of These: A Biblical Answer to Poverty," and she is a professor as well at the college level. Always glad to have Ann on, and welcome.
1: Hi, Bill. It's good to talk to you again. How are you? you?
0: Well, I'm good, except everything is costing way more money than usual, and I think Mm. it's making everyone quite nervous. I mean, inflation is at a 40-year high and gas prices are crazy. And so when we look at some of the alarming levels of uh, inflationary prices and we see what's going on in Ukraine, how do we make sense of all this?
1: Yeah, I mean, you're right. I think it's a very nerve-wracking time, I think, for ordinary Americans— It's a time of just a lot of questions and a lot of worries, and inflation uh, hits people right in the pocketbook. Um, And it's really pernicious because this type of inflation that we're seeing is not temporary. uh, And it's in the sense that it is, you know, it's not just kind of a flash in the pan that went away. In fact, many people were saying six months ago, this was transitory, meaning it's going to be a small episode and it will go away. And clearly that hasn't happened. And so I think it's a real time of concern because when you have this type of systematic inflation, it means that everything is getting more expensive while some things get more expensive than others. And so this is just bad news, right? Because things are getting more expensive, but some things are way out of whack. And you mentioned gasoline prices, which this is just being fueled Um, by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And so we've kind of, um, you know, have real questions about the future. And I think we can certainly talk about how, you know, whatever in there you want to talk about. But I think it's a a scary time for people. And as we talked about last time I was with you, people have to make real decisions. You know, maybe Mm -hmm. what are we not going to do right now? And uh, how do we cut down on our gas bill? I mean, you know, hopefully the weather gets warmer and helps us with that. But how do we maybe not drive as much, you know, so these are kind of very tough decisions for families.
0: Yeah. And, and you always calm me down when I talk to you about the economy. <laughs> I mean, but literally the gas prices jumped 59 cents a gallon in one week. And to I me, mean, when you, when you see that, you think, Oh, that is really scary because that's yes. going to also affect every delivery item and everything else that is delivered. And that's going to only drive the price up of everything.
1: Everything. I mean, gasoline affects, so much because as you mentioned those bananas that come to your grocery store they are carried on a truck um, to get there and so there are the transportation costs are are much higher and so that's why you're seeing these kind of you know uh, price increases they're really high as you mentioned with gasoline I was watching it for a few days last week it went up 15 cents a day Mm -hmm. and I thought You know, you look at that and you say, this is unsustainable. We know it's unsustainable. And so, you know, in terms of being able to afford to live that way. And so we don't want to repeat the 70s. That's (laughs) for people who lived through, you know, the gas lines in the 70s and the rationing of the gasoline. uh, Even if you didn't live through that, you don't want to go through it. Right. And so we want to make sure we get this fixed as soon as possible. Mm
0: -hmm. And explain to us uh, the feds and how they participate in this with interest rates and how that affects our economy?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, monetary policy is obviously complicated. um, And there's two things that can affect inflation. So there's kind of the demand side of inflation and the supply side of inflation. And so the supply side of inflation is just the supply of dollars that are in the economy. And that's where the Federal Reserve plays a role. And so it's money is, is it's complicated, I suppose, but it's just like anything else in terms of you know the the amount of money supplied needs to match the amount of money that is demanded, and the amount of money demanded is what consumers want to hold, both domestic consumers and international consumers. Because the dollar, the United States dollar, is the world reserve currency, and so people like to hold the dollar. That's really good for us. Um, it makes the dollar very strong and valuable. So those, that's a good thing. And that's uh, largely because the dollar has a really good reputation, right? We don't, our central bank doesn't act like Venezuela's central bank, is what I'm saying there. And so that keeps the value of the dollar in the long run, you know, kind of pretty stable. So that's the, w- where the Fed plays a role in monetary policy. And so if the Fed engages in a lot of, you know, kind of making the money supply volatile, then or, you know, printing too much money or um, selling too many assets that they shouldn't be selling, which puts money into the economy. So it's not just about turning on the printing presses. And of course, this is what countries like Venezuela do, right? They, They truly just turn on the printing presses and print money. This is the worst possible thing you can do because it's very quick to lead to hyperinflation. So that's not what the Federal Reserve is doing. However, Um, there has been a lot of quantitative easing in the last few years, which is just a practice of the Fed to kind of buy assets and things like this. And by buying assets, they are putting money or liquidity into the economy. And so, you know, 80% of the dollars in circulation today were put into circulation in something like the last 22 years. So that's a lot of injection, right? So one of the things we noticed was that Money supply kind of shrank a little bit at the beginning of COVID, uh, or excuse me, money demand, and then it kind of increased. So I think some of what we're seeing is just a lot of quantitative easing, which is monetary policy, but also our federal government has a fiscal crisis, which you and I have talked about before, right? And that's just an amount of overall government spending. And so we've spent a fortune through COVID. I mean, a fortune. Mm-hmm. And so this, all of this new spending – is having these effects, right? So so there's one side of 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 this inflationary issue that we're facing. But the other side is the demand side. It's consumer demand for things. And so I think this part of it has been affected in a variety of ways. One COVID, right? So two years of COVID meant we weren't buying as much at the beginning and we certainly weren't going on vacations. People weren't flying as much. People weren't staying in hotels, all those types. Nobody's going to the movies, this type of thing. But then that starts to rebound. And so kind of you get all this demand, this kind of pent up demand for all of those things as the lockdowns eased and things like this. But on top of that, you have other issues such as these shipping delays, right? So these supply chain issues that people are dealing with, that we're still dealing with, that's going to cause prices to rise. Because if people are demanding the goods and we can't get the goods to them, then the price is going to go up as a way to ration the goods. Um, And then, of course, there's international affairs generally, but specifically thinking of the Russian invasion, right? So there's a war now that we didn't have two weeks ago, And Russia is a major exporter of wheat. Mm -hmm. Russia is a major exporter of um, oil, among other things. And so, uh, you know, we're not uh, accepting Russian imports of oil at the moment. Russia has banned, I believe, wheat exports to the EU, and so this is going to affect supply issues around the world. And it's not that those have to be permanent in the sense that, you know, other people can start refining oil and we can try to pick up the slack, but it's not instant. And so I think grocery prices might continue to go up. And so there's a lot going on right now that's almost almost could be described as a perfect storm that's leading to where we are. But I think fundamentally, Bill I think the effects of COVID will ultimately go away. I think the effects of some of these international affairs issues will settle down, but we have to get our fiscal house in order Mm -hmm. and we need to engage in restrained monetary policy. If we don't do those two things, this will be a problem in the future, even if it goes away now. So our spending is a real problem. And I think we have to fix that.
0: Mm -hmm. Thank you, Dr. Ann Bradley is my guest. And just as an, um, economics professor, I would love for you to give me your perspective on what is happening in the economy in Russia. I mean, right now, the stock market's been closed for a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. The ruble is worth nothing. And what is going on with that economy?
1: Yeah, I mean, the ruble is worth less than a penny to the dollar. Amazing. Less than one penny. I mean, just overnight. And really, I think we have to hate Um, what the Russian government is doing. I mean, it's obvious to say that, but I think we need to remember that there are Russians that don't support this. They want to be free. And, you know, the devastation of their economy is not good for them. It's another tragedy on top of a tragedy. Um, You know, I was looking at this the other day, just as a kind of fact, factoid. The total market value of Bitcoin Mm -hmm. is higher Than the total market value of the ruble that I mean, the ruble is just kind of devastated. And so in some ways, how is this a good thing? I guess, you know, you could you could think about it in a couple of ways. This is going to put pressure on the Russian government. And so there were talks today. um, There's negotiations going on. You know, this puts a pinch because they don't want their entire economy to be devastated. Now, they'll look to other countries to try to support them We'll see. Have to see what you know happens there. But I think we have to also consider there are fellow human beings that live in Russia that are suffering. And I, I think another issue that's going on too is this kind of cancellation, right? So um, we might call it cancel culture comes to Russia. So you might have heard that McDonald's stopped, you know, closed all of their Russian stores, um, and they say it's temporary, um, and it's kind of a, a move to punish. And maybe that move will be effective. But I also think this harms Russian people. So Mm -hmm. it's a very difficult situation. By the way, when you do that, you don't stop the demand for things. So there was a really interesting little story that I saw today uh, 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 that Russians went out and bought all these Big Macs, and people are kind of hoarding them. In their refrigerators, which, you know, who knows how long a Big Mac lasts. It's probably got so many preservatives. It probably lasts a long time. Mm-hmm. But they're selling them for like 250 euro, a Big Mac. Oh, So there's all these, you know, this is kind of a secondary market that emerges when we close an initial market. So I think the Russians are really in trouble, the Russian people, if this continues. And I think we just have to be thoughtful and prayerful, I would say, about how we get out of this. And I don't have all the answers. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, we, ultimately what we want is we want peace and commerce and interdependence. That's what we want. Um, Putin is playing, I think, a very losing game. And even militarily, I, I think, you know, kind of the, the Russian military just can't do a lot of what it thinks it can do. And certainly not a military expert. But so I think that they, you know, kind of maybe he overplayed his hand. Um, And so what that means ultimately is this will probably get resolved at some point. But, you know, we don't know. We don't know the end time. We don't know if he's willing to go down with his ship. And and so I I think there's just a lot of things to think about. It's complicated, right? Because even sanctions, sanctions, I think, make us feel like we're doing something. But if you look at a lot of the economic literature on sanctions, they're very rarely effective. Right. So that's kind of a bummer in the sense that you want to use this tool that seems very easy to use because you can kind of turn it off and turn it on like a switch mm-hmm. but it doesn't usually work it's just not always that effective and so what sanctions often do is hurt the citizens of an economy not so much the leadership yeah. and that's kind of not i don't think that's what we want so i think it's tricky i think it's going to be tricky to figure out what you know how do we get out of this how how do we restore some peace? How do we support Ukraine? Those are all important things. Mm -hmm.
0: Dr. Ann Bradley is my guest. And if you have a question, we've got time for one or two. Let me know what your question is. I've got an economist right now on the show. You can ask a specific question. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Welcome back to the show. Dr. Anne Rathbone Bradley is my guest. She is an economist, a professor, author. Really love having her on. So, Ann, as I look ahead and and I see what, in my opinion, might be recession warning signs showing up now, what what do you think about the idea of a recession and when might it happen?
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, it's hard to predict that exactly. I think, you know, a lot of people have been, Comparing the time we're living in to the 1970s. And in general, I think, you know, who wants, like I said before, earlier, who wants to go back to that? We really, we really don't want to. Um, <laughs> there's not a lot of good things, perhaps, to relive from the 70s. But if you look at something that's called the misery index, which is aptly named, I suppose, uh, it compl- combines levels of unemployment and inflation. And so I think this is. Helpful because it gives us a sense of the how the quality of life for ordinary people is changing, and so you know in the middle of the seventies or, or sorry, at the end of the seventies it was about twenty two percent which is kind of its all time high um, and now we're at you know eleven and a half percent, and so I don't think we're in an apocalyptic state. By any means. And this is why I would just encourage everyone to watch less news <laughs> in general, you know, kind of read fewer tweets, because I think that the way journalism and the media in general work is just the sky is falling kind of narratives, and it gets us afraid. And certainly we know God is in charge of us and the whole earth. And so, I mean, that doesn't make inflation go away tomorrow. I realize that. But we have to be confident in that. And so. You know, I don't even want to make any predictions about a recession. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it will happen, and it doesn't have to be inevitable. Good. And here's the other thing that's really good news. We continue to add jobs to the economy. So in that way, this is nothing like the 70s. So in the 70s, you had these really high unemployment uh, rates. Today, what do you have? You have help-wanted signs everywhere. That's true. Right? You can't get an Uber sometimes because people are busy. And why are? what are they busy doing? They're getting other jobs. So what we're seeing is in the service sector – the reason you might have a, a wait staff shortage at, you know, your local glory days or something is actually because those people are quitting at very high rates and they're moving to better jobs. So in general, that's a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but unemployment is way back down to kind of mostly before COVID levels. And so I, I don't think it's a doom and gloom story yet. Mm-hmm. I don't think it has to become one. But this thing that you and I have talked about that kind of looms in the background is the the spending level of the United States government, which is facilitated by the people who we elect for office. And so on some level, the American people have to have a reckoning with what's the future going to be, because we cannot continue to spend at levels that we cannot afford. If you can't do it on your personal credit card, you can't do it on the government's credit card either. This is just a very easy rule of thumb and so it doesn't mean that the government should never borrow some debt is good debt just like some debt personally is good debt right having a mortgage that can be really good debt when you open a business and you make investments those can be really good debt so it's not no debt but it's reckless spending is unsustainable and again i think that people that suffer when when things start to crash are people that are middle class lower middle class in terms of their incomes, right? Or at the bottom of the income distribution. Those are the t- the groups of people that cannot escape inflation as easily, right? If you're very wealthy, you don't like to pay higher prices, but you can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but what about people who can't are barely surviving? Uh, you know, um, 7.9% inflation is where we are from last year. So that's a lot. So I think that there are warning signs that we have to be that we have to reckon ourselves with and i really think covid is a time when we just wrote checks i mean the got we meaning the government the, the united states government just wrote a lot of checks handed out a lot of money and we couldn't afford it and what we really need is to walk away from that mentality covid is receding Mm-hmm. We need to you know, people are getting back to work. Commerce is back, you know, really thriving. And so we've got to reduce government spending. But my, the only reason I bring up covid here, Bill, is because a crisis is an opportunistic time for people in government. And what I mean by that is that a crisis is a time when people are afraid, whether it's the Great Recession, whether it's covid, this happened after nine eleven. when people are terrified, they are willing to surrender kind of some liberties Mm -hmm. because that we look to the government to protect us. And some of that's okay, right? Some of that is kind of the design of the state. But I think that we have, what we see is that after the crisis, we never go back down to pre-crisis levels of spending. And this has really been a a phenomenon we've seen over the last hundred years. If you look at the 20th century and you look at some of the crises, you know, you start to see what economists call the ratchet effect, where we just ratchet up the spending, but it never gets ratcheted back down after the crisis is over. So I think we should be worried about a crisis because we're more likely to just sit back and let the government do all this stuff to, you know, in the name of helping us. But it's ultimately going to collapse the economy. If we spend like recklessly, like we have been in perpetuity, the economy will become insolvent. That is a possibility. I mean, we're not special in the United States in that regard. You know, money is what it is and, and budget limits are what they are. And so if we, you know, if we want to advance the prosperity that we have been, a, you know, a party to for the past 200 years, which I think is full, we're fully capable of doing, we just have to get our domestic house in order.
0: Mm-hmm. And I got a couple of questions that have come in. What are the pros and cons of a self-sufficient national economy versus relying on global resources?
1: I love this question. and oh, Billy, you need to make sure you cut me off because I could talk about this all day. Well, I wished I got this um, question
0: sooner because we don't have tons of time, and I do want to hear yeah. everything you got on okay, this. Okay,
1: I'll be brief. I'll be brief. But I guess the bottom line I would say is I don't think it's an you know I don't think there is there are benefits to be to being completely isolated because it it too has an inflationary effect. So if we decide, and, you know, I'm just being extreme, but if in an extreme example, if the United States were to say, we're not, we don't want to depend on other countries, we want to try to make everything at home, this is impossible because the cap's already out of the bag. We already live in a globalized market, you know, a globalized world economy, um, and even something like an iPhone, you know, it's an American product, but it's made everywhere. Um, it's got parts from all over the world, labor from all over the world. So, it, you know, it's an American company that produces an American product, but it's from everywhere. And that's a good thing, right? That's a good thing. And we call this in economics interdependency. So I think what we want to do is make sure that we have a diversified portfolio in imports and exports and not just rely on one country for something. So that would be different. And that, so that's me just nuancing the question a little mm-hmm. bit. So I think if you totally domesticated all production, it 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 would be just... Unsustainable. We couldn't do that. But I think you don't want to be just tied to one country for something like oil, right? So you want a diversified portfolio, making some at home if that's economically efficient, which it certainly is in the United States for oil because we have that resource here, but also diversifying that international portfolio. So I think that's the answer, and I think that's actually what protects you the most when there is an international crisis.
0: Mm-hmm. I have very little time left, but one more quick question. Could you give a brief explanation on Bitcoin and how it comes into play with the economy?
1: Yeah, I mean I'll, again, this is a hard one to do briefly I know <laughs> um, and I'm not a Bitcoin expert, but you know it's 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 cryptocurrency, and so Bitcoin is the biggest. Um, you know, I just was actually writing a little piece on this that will come out soon. And, um, so doing a little research, there's over 10,000 cryptocurrencies. I had no idea. Yeah. And most of them are, you know, small or don't do anything. And so, you know, the, the, the big benefit of, of Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency is that it's decentralized. And so that's kind of, it's a very technical kind of process by which it operates. Yeah. But the beauty is that, you know, there's a certain finite number of Bitcoins.
0: And I hate to do this to you, but I'm going to have to stop it right there because we're just literally out of time. But I do want to get back to that and I'll have you on again soon. Thank you so much.
1: Okay. Sorry, I couldn't answer it all. No, that's great.
0: We'll take a short break and we'll be back with uh, Mike (music) Novotny. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with it's Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, show. and clarity in a special
2: repeat performance.
0: Pastor Mike Novotny said that if you've been through a traumatic event like an unexpected death or a painful divorce, maybe a loved one's addiction, there are Few things that have the power to heal, quite like God's Word and and God's people, but keeping secrets keeps us stuck in our pain, but humbly opening the Word and inviting others into our lives has healing power that he can explain to us, which we're very glad he can do that. He's the pastor at CORE, a church in downtown Appleton, Wisconsin. He's also a lead speaker for Time of Grace, which is a media ministry that reaches more than uh, a million times each month through a weekly television broadcast and podcast. So he's way behind my fan base, but uh, that's another another topic. He's with us today uh, to talk about uh, a book series, How to Heal. Mike, welcome.
2: Hey. Thanks, Bill. You know, those numbers sound big and impressive, but yeah. when you go home after a sermon <laughs> and your own kids can't tell you what it was about, it's... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I
0: know. I know. Uh, when we're serving the Lord, uh, nothing matters. I'm speaking to uh, one person today. That's all. Yeah, Amen.
2: And I hope Amen. I hope
0: there's more than one listening. But honestly, you're here to show up and suit up and serve, right?
2: Amen to that. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, it's nice to have you back. So let's talk about the need to heal when when there's abuse that's involved. Let's talk about yeah. what, what God says and what God says to the person who's been abused. And let's talk about what God says to the... Um, the abusive, and and then to the church. So big topics, Mm -hmm. but let's get
2: into it. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. Where do you want to start? Let's start with abuse. What does God say? It's bad. Um, Yeah, beyond he... God hates abuse with such a passion that the Bible speaks in the starkest of terms of what God thinks of people who give into selfish patterns of violence, um, I mean, what, you have to get six chapters into the story of the flood? You know, God brings this devastation to almost all of humanity. And the reason given was because the earth was filled with violence. Mm-hmm. So you know, you think of, of God's judgment. I mean, has it ever been poured out quite like that? Um, so God sets this tone really early that, unfortunately, we don't always hear as clearly in our churches of how much God takes the side of the oppressed and the abused, and he is passionately against those who are abusive. Yeah, so we
0: understand that clearly, that God is against this, and he has consequences for it, obviously, as we read in Scripture, but there's a lot that we still need to learn about uh, the people who have been abused— and the people who are doing the abusive behavior, and I know this is a sensitive topic, so uh, yeah. you're going to need to kind of help guide me through this conversation because you've worked on it so much harder than I have.
2: Yeah, you know, I feel I'm not the most naive person in the room, but I I grew up in a safe family. I've been I married my first girlfriend, who I can't I'm trying to remember the, if I've ever seen her all that angry. So I was kind of blessed with this bubble where abuse was a a foreign concept to me. Uh, But a couple months ago, we kind of dove into the deep end at our church to do this three-part series on abuse. And wow, once I started digging and reading and asking questions and hearing people's stories, um, it it broke my heart just to hear what a common situation it is for someone to have not just been hurt by a a word or a one-time action— but just this persistent pattern Mm -hmm. of people fear and force to control them. And I I, I didn't realize it, but I had been preaching to, you know, triple-digit abuse victims every Sunday in our smallish, medium-sized church.
0: Wow. So I know that we have heard stories here at Faith Radio from people who have been victims of abuse. And I promise, Mike, they're horrible. And especially when the abuser has been their husband who has been a pastor.
2: Yes, so yes, it, it does it, run
0: deep, and it and it is really hard to process.
2: Yeah, and and that's, I think that's one of the things that starts to to drive me more than ever is that, you know, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, and when people who claim to be followers of Jesus or, or claim to represent Jesus as leaders, when husbands or fathers or you know even females are opening the Bible and using it to cover up their abuse that that just does such damage to the beautiful name of Jesus. And so kind of part of my motivation now is just to be so clear of how much God hates this, how much he loves people who've been broken by abuse. So people run to the name of God instead of running away from the name of God because it's been twisted. So, Mike, if we do a little self-diagnostic here, you grew up Mm -hmm. in a pretty nice
0: home. Uh, Mom and dad got along. You met your wife at a young age, and you apparently have not, done much yelling in, in your relationship, which is awesome. But mm-hmm. if we're just speaking to everyone right now, mm-hmm. what are some ways we can do a, a diagnostic on looking at yourself? I mean, how your dad treated your mom, how your mom spoke to your dad, uh, how the adults in your life treated you. I mean, here's some questions you have in your in your book. Do you have a pattern of getting angry when your partner or children don't do what you want? Do you express mm. anger by name-calling, threatening looks, physical threats, physical acts, like breaking things? Um, these are all kind of, that's a scary behavior.
2: Yeah, yeah, and it can show up in so many forms, right? It might be, but we kind of think of the, you know, the woman with the black eye, mm-hmm. the guy throwing a beer bottle against the wall, the towering over the children, physical threats. Um but wow, I've, I've learned a lot about the power of words to control people. Um, it, if you're dating someone and you tell them you're worthless, you're ugly, I don't know why I'm with you, you can never have a healthy relationship, you're so disgusting, you're so stupid, you know, you say that enough times, and even though it's just one voice, for someone who's been through that, it, it almost becomes like truth. Mm-hmm. And so you know, from the outside, you're looking at someone who's just you know, being taken advantage of saying, oh, you, you need to, to get out. But... Unfortunately, we learn through repetition, and that can be a beautiful thing when God says he loves us and he's for us countless times in the Bible, but abusers can hijack the way the brain works and just convince people that there is nothing better than the situation that they're in, and so they stay.
0: Yeah, and I would say, Mike, that you can maybe hear something once, and it can be pretty traumatizing. You don't Mm -hmm. need to hear it multiple times. You hear something once, and it can just be a game-changer.
2: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Words makes me think of James chapter three. You know, the, the little tongue in our body Oof. sets a whole forest on fire and it uh it, it can't be tamed. So yeah, you're you're spot on. Just mm-hmm. recognizing, for better or worse, the power of our words. Yeah. What about
0: when people in your life are afraid to contradict you? So in other words, there's gonna be no discussion. It's my way or the
2: highway. Hmm. Yeah. That's <laughs> That's not like Jesus.
0: (laughs) It sure isn't.
2: (laughs) Yeah, just, uh, I don't know if this is good. Uh, You can correct me if you think my explanation of the book of Genesis is off. But it it struck me that in the beginning when God created man and woman, you know, he created Eve out of Adam's rib. And I I thought a ton about that in recent years. Like, what is a, a rib? Is this really strong bone that, like, it, it takes a hit so that these vital and vulnerable organs beneath it can thrive. And I was thinking when—and yeah, and abuse can go both ways with men and women, but, um, you know, stereotypically and statistically, it's more men, that if men are good ribs, you know, they'll take the hit. They'll go through something uncomfortable. They're get, they'll get bruised to make the vital people in their home feel safe so they can thrive and be exactly what God has made them to be. But I just sense there's a lot of, there's a lot of broken ribs out there um, for a whole bunch of reasons. And really, men stepping up to be strong in a Christ-like way, um, to defend the weak, to stand up for those who are being taken advantage of, um, man, I'm, I, I think about that often, just the, the calling that God has given to us to be strong, but to be sacrificial, which is really exactly what Jesus did for his church.
0: Yeah, Mike, I'm not going to correct you on that one. I think you're spot on. Yeah, I mean, I think of what Paul writes in the New Testament um, when he uh, talks about himself. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, yes, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So, Paul was
2: violent. Yeah, yeah. That, that in this little book that I wrote, "How to Heal." I come back to that in the second part because, you know, we want to be really strong of the evil of abuse. And yet, isn't it interesting that the guy who writes half the New Testament was an abusive man that people feared? Right. You know, And not so, just kind of. Yes.
0: <laughs> they really feared him.
2: Yes. Yeah, in, indeed. So it's just a great reminder. I mean, in our church, we have many, many people who've been abused and I've, I've come to know a number of people who have been abusive and even done jail time for that and you know making sure that our, our church you know in a wise way in a loving way is not just picking and choosing who can be forgiven or be welcomed or be saved but trying to be as biblical as we can with with everyone involved in the situation
0: mhm well, as we continue this discussion Mike I also want to throw into the, mi- the mix the idea of what's gone on in our country the last 15 months and the COVID, the way in which it has caused us to spend a lot more time under a lot more difficult circumstances. And there's been a lot of added new pressures because of the proximity. Ooh, yeah.
2: Yeah, what what do you think? As I've kind of analyzed COVID, um, I kind of thought whatever existed before was just multiplied by a factor of 10. Mm -hmm. You know, if you had a really kind of loving home life safe if addiction and abuse weren't issues like things for a lot of people got a lot better. Um, but for other people who are in dangerous situations, you know, for some kids going to school was their escape from, from, you know, mom's boyfriend's anger, right? Um, you know, then situations just got even more frequent and intense. So yeah, COVID really, w- whether it's addiction to pornography or drinking or um, abuse, like that, yeah, that just, what existed before got a lot got a lot greater in the in the past fifteen months.
0: hmm It says in Psalm, I think it's eleven, the Lord examines the righteous but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. I'd love for you to talk about that from a pastoral standpoint.
2: Ooh, yeah. Yeah, we we often say, and I think for good reason, you know, God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. But yeah. this is one of those passages that kind of has an asterisk after that. Statement like those who love violence, so that you know they don't just struggle with it or repent of it, they love it, they love seeing people in pain. I mean, God could not be more clear here. He hates, he hates, and not just regularly, but with a passion. So, if somehow there was a regular hatred and then there was super passionate hatred, that's where God stands as he looks out on those who love violence. So, I mean, that's a warning if someone's listening and they're they're minimizing their abusive behavior. You know, I just it was a bad day, or the, you know, she was asking for it, or the kids shouldn't talk back to me, or I was drunk. Like, no. Like you need to see how God sees this. Um, He doesn't just hate it. If there's not repentance and coming to Him in remorse, he He will hate you with a passion, which Someone who's manipulative just needs to be smacked in the face with the truth of the word before it's too late. <laughs> yeah.
0: Mike, talk a little bit more about that with people that use the Bible to get what they want oh. and maybe using it in a, a weaponized sort of way and being very manipulative.
2: Yeah. Uh, so I, I just got this, maybe one of the top five longest emails anyone <laughs> has ever uh, came into my inbox yesterday. It was a a guy who had grown up with a little bit of church. He he called himself an absolute atheist now. Um, his mom was being abused, and he was being abused by the the father um, and the husband. And then they started going to church. And the father took all the passages about you know sparing the rod in the Proverbs, and he just turned into a sadist who would... Mm. I mean, wow. this man's sent me a, a note. He remembers his like little superhero underwear being stained with his own blood. Oh boy. Um, you know, oh boy. so that, that that's heavy when you think about it. And now what is it, what has it done? It has totally turned him off to the God of the Bible because this monster took a good scripture about loving discipline and twisted it for his own selfish gain. Mm-hmm. So, I've realized, I, you know, I can't fix and we can't fix everyone's individual behavior. But where I want to do better as a pastor and as a church is just to be so so clear when we publicly speak about this, that if a kid is going through that and he comes to church on Sunday, he he knows that his pastor and his Jesus is not standing on the side of his abuser.
0: That's important. That's I'm a big pull- deal.
2: Yeah, God hates it with a passion. I just, I pray you can escape it. I'll do whatever I can to help you. But if there's something going on right now that we don't know about, just let's be clear of where our loving Savior stands.
0: Mm. God bless you in this ministry that you have and this awareness you have. Pastor Mike Novotny is our guest. He's the pastor at the CORE Church in downtown Appleton, Wisconsin. We're talking uh, about his How to Heal e-book. We'll be right back. listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, Hope, and Clarity in a special repeat performance. Dwight L. Moody said, The voice of sin is loud, but the voice of forgiveness is louder. I love that quote. My guest is Pastor Mike Novotny. He is the pastor at the CORE Church in downtown Appleton, Wisconsin. He's written a book, How to Heal. And let me ask you this, Mike, because what happens when the church... uh, needs to forgive and forget the sin of abuse. How do we process that? And and how do we go about making sure that we um, have a place for repentant abusers among its members?
2: Yeah, great question. Um, I think to what you said, we forgive, but we must, 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 must not (laughs) forget. I, I sometimes say if I if I know that you're an alcoholic and you're battling it um you I would love to have you in my church but you're not going to come early to set up the bread and the wine for communion. If you have a gambling addiction I would love for you to to walk with us and and seek God and his forgiveness but you're probably not going to be counting the offering mm-hmm. in the back office with the other ushers. Mm-hmm. And in the same way if you have a history of abuse Um, we are going to shepherd you and welcome you with wisdom. So background checks, absolutely. Um, We have a number of uh, people who've been involved in our church family who have to come with a chauffeur where, I know you're a grown man, but if you get up to go to the bathroom, uh, a buddy's going to go with you. Wow. You know, you you step onto our property, and until you leave it, we're not going to treat you as second class. You're absolutely forgiven by the blood of Christ. But we are called by Christ to protect the little ones and to make it a safe place. We want to be like a rib to our whole church family. And so, yeah, it's, we're willing to do the work and set up the boundaries. You have to have the humility to submit to it. And, and what I've really found is having high standards like that at a church will help you see if the abusive person really does lament their sin or if they're still trying to manipulate and hold on to power and control.
0: Wow, that's powerful, Mike. So I want to continue this because when it comes to someone who's been abusive and violent, or maybe has uh, a registered sex offender or something like that, I'm pretty certain that there's a, a big population of the church that is a little tentative, a little cringeworthy when it comes to accepting them in. And Jesus was, of course, known for Always being with the people who are on the the margins, the prostitutes and tax collectors, and those were considered probably the worst sinners of the day. So, yes. what do, how do faithful believers come alongside the ones that would be considered the abusive and the sex offenders and some of the worst sinners of our day?
2: Oh man, I think that's the right question, Bill. Um, <laughs> it's tr- I kind of wrote this down on my my notes before we talked today. If if you want church to be easy, then just pick and choose who can come. <laughs> mm. Yeah, well said. You know, I mean, th- this whole issue, and you're right about it, it. I mean, it is so damaging. It it does traumatize people that it is work. And ha- having been in the middle of it, it's, it's just a lot of work to follow up and get the volunteers and the show. Chauff- it's work for me. It's extra work for the abusive person who wants to come. it, And it's extra work for the, the congregation because those are some painful memories for many people. So, yeah, if, if we want Sunday to just be convenient and comfortable, um, we got to give up this thing about grace. And we got to start picking and choosing the, the good people instead of the really bad ones. Mm-hmm. But I have a hunch in the Bible it says something about grace. So you can... <laughs> <laughs> it's the reality of it, right? It's yeah. the messiness mm-hmm. of the real church. You had, you had Simon the Zealot, and you had Matthew the tax collector, and you had Jewish men and women who had been taken advantage of and hurt, and but God brought them all together. So we're trying to imitate that in our day.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, as your church family has reached out and come alongside people who have been abusive or have been victims of abuse, how have you come alongside... What have you done that has helped and worked? And is there anything that you wished you would have done differently?
2: Oh, yeah, that's a that's
0: a sharp question. I mean, I, I um, do a lot of work with uh, men in recovery from drugs and alcohol, and when you're when you're dealing with people who have been abusive, and uh, it, it is very challenging. And and I I feel like I make a lot of mistakes trying
2: to help. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, one thing that I've tried to do and I want to do even more is, is just the, the overwhelming emphasis in the New Testament of our identity through Jesus. Um, a couple of years ago, I, I went through the whole New Testament and I underlined like every single passage that talked about how God views Christians. And I, I found 682 separate examples. You know, God might say you're holy, you're blameless, you're pure, or you're sinful, you you have little faith, um, that kind of stuff. And what I found was out of the 682 examples, 612 of them were positive. Wow.
0: Yeah,
2: it was a nine, every time, every one time in the New Testament, God calls a Christian a sinner. Nine times he calls them saint, holy, beloved, my family, my children, my, my people. Um, so that identity, you know, let's say for the person who has been abused, They've heard so many degrading words that just to, you know, we're going to preach hard truth in church, but for them to hear that through Christ, um, they're not just broken sinners sneaking in the back gate of heaven. Um, They're so loved by the Father that when he opens his mouth and he inspires his apostles, they just gush about the crazy delight he has in his children, even those who have been abused. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And I think that same thing can transform someone who's been an addict or who's been abusive. You know, it's not a light switch, but like abuse is not who you are. You're You're a child of God. You have everything in Christ. You don't need to maintain power and control over whoever to have a good life. Jesus came to give us life to the full when he was abused on the cross. So man, really getting to the heart of the gospel, letting it comfort, letting it heal, and then letting it transform people who've known some some pretty ugly ways in their past.
0: Mm-hmm. Mike, we just have a couple of minutes left. I'd love for you to, to minister today to the people who are listening who have been uh, abused. And I know the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And I know even hearing these words is going to be stirring up emotion. So you would, I would love if you would encourage them.
2: Yeah. Let me say two quick things. Uh, Number one, Jesus knows. Um, I imagine most people in your life don't know what all happened. But he not only knows because he knows everything, he knows because he went through it on the cross. So on the crucifixion, Jesus was absolutely abused. And yet because of that, there is such unconditional love for you that you're you're not broken to God, you're not second rate, you're not too messy, you're not damaged goods. A um, young woman's been coming to our church who was sex-trafficked as a as a kid. And uh, she came, and uh, we just talked about grace. And she texted me afterwards, and it was so moving to her that there was a kind of love that was completely no strings attached, absolutely unconditional. And it didn't pick and choose. It was for people just like her. And, uh, man, that's got to her heart. And I, I see her every every Sunday in our church. She comes back, and just looking her in the eye always motivates me to preach the love that Jesus has for the whole world. Mm -hmm.
0: I want to send all of my listeners to timeofgrace.org, timeofgrace.org, backslash abuse, if you want to learn more about Mike's uh, book. And he's got plenty of other resources there you can check out. And again, it's timeofgrace.org. And his uh, book is How to Heal. Mike, I appreciate you coming on. And how are things in Appleton, Wisconsin, the home of the Houdini Museum? (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, obviously the world famous houdini museum yeah yeah things are good it's beautiful we're uh we're happy we wear long underwear in wisconsin for about <laughs> nine months and of the year so we finally well, got
0: packed away yeah so thanks for coming on have a great after- a great rest of the day thanks bill yep mike novotany's been my guest that's all the time we have have a great night everyone see you tomorrow